Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Coming up on today's show, we'll get your eyewitness reports of the wicked weather that rolled through Alberta this weekend after we chat with Nevin Demiliano, our resident storm chaser. We're also going to talk about Canada's crisis line callers and people seeking mental health help after the Pope's visit. We're going to talk about the online streaming bill, C-11. It's continuing to see more and more pictures of the damage and destruction from yesterday's hailstorm. I mean, boy, oh boy, some of the vehicles were, well, they're destroyed, literally destroyed. All of the windows gone and, you know, what remains of the vehicle just dented all over, top to bottom. So Chris and I were talking before during the break there. I mean, we were both saying, like, I, I can't believe nobody was hurt or killed when you see what these hailstorms can do, right? We've You've seen homes with the siding blown apart and roofs all pockmarked and everything. I mean, the vehicles, how do people not get killed by these? Well, they do, but not very often. This is according to Weather Underground. Um, in spite of the enormous crop and property damage that these hailstorms cause, only three people are known to have been killed by falling hailstones in modern U.S. history. A farmer caught in his field in Lubbock, Texas, May 13th of 1930. A baby struck by large hail in Fort Collins, Colorado in 79. And a boater uh, in Texas in March of 2000. So it's extremely uncommon, which really is kind of surprising when you see what happened yesterday. But very, very fortunate that it didn't. I mean, we're thankful for that. But Let's get an account of what happened this weekend, because it wasn't just that storm. Uh, Nevin Demiliano joins us now. He's with Prairie Storm Chasers. He's been with us before. Nevin, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shane. Yeah, so this weekend, let's just go through it, because we're hearing a lot about the storm that happened last night, and for good reason, but I know Big Valley had to be shut down. There were all kinds of tornado reports. So just tell us about how this weekend of wild weather unfolded. Yeah, and then I think we were when we were looking to forecast for this weekend, we kind of saw that things had heated up earlier last week, and, and we were just waiting for that yeah. kind of ridge of high pressure to break down, and, that, and that's what happened over the weekend. So we saw several days of severe weather. And that's what it is, Nevin, right? We, we had the heat and we had the humidity for a good long stretch of time, and then we all knew that it was supposed to cool off into this week, and it's when you get that change that you're going to see things touch off, right? Exactly. Exactly. Where was the the storm? Like there was tornadoes. We actually did have a tornado this weekend. Where was that one? That was near uh, Coronation, actually. Yeah, that was from Sunday. Uh, a storm had had actually fired near Heisler, Alberta, and kind of tracked southeast um, before, and it produced very large hail as well, too. Where were you for all these storms? I know you were pretty close yesterday. You were setting up some incredible pictures yesterday. Yeah, yesterday we were kind of targeting that. Uh, corridor between Rocky Mountain House and and east through central Alberta uh, for all the ingredients. Sunday was a little bit of a surprise uh, where that actually that storm fired and and kind of moved. We were actually targeting an area closer to the foothills, so um, 
there wasn't a lot of views of that one, but there were still some significant storms right in the Nordeg area, even on Sunday and into uh, early Monday morning at the, in like two o'clock in the morning. And we talked to some campers out there that had trees that had fallen down next to their trailers. So there was still some significant weather, even late into the night. When you're out doing things like this, like we were talking about the hail before I brought you on. I mean, how mm-hmm. do people not die from this, Nevin? Seriously, I mean, not trying to be glib here. I mean, these are, they're bullets from the sky. Absolutely. Uh, there's a reason storm chasers often carry helmets in their vehicles when we're, when we're chasing and, and have armored vehicles as well. So it's not like we're, we're just chasing in, in regular vehicles most of the time. But uh, it's a good question because you see a lot of animals that are killed by hailstones. Oh, really? Uh, cows, cows, yeah, for sure. Um, and so you got to always be careful of that. It's not just the tornadoes are often what we're looking for, but uh, the hail, the wind, especially wind-driven hail, um, and that monster hail that you like you saw yesterday—that's that's devastating uh, to hit anyone or anything. So you really have to be careful around those those events. Um, what are we looking like now? Things seem to have calmed down quite a bit here, and now we're into this cool pattern. But I know it's supposed to warm up again this weekend. Uh, yeah, we haven't really. We're still kind of processing after a busy weekend, <laughs> so we haven't sat down to look at the the future, but. Um, August, we're still going to see severe weather, right? It's it's still part of our severe weather season, yeah. um, and and we know we'll probably get a few good storms. And and I think one of the things I, I read some of the messages from people who were trapped on the QE2 there in that storm, and yeah. like I know sometimes they said that there wasn't a lot of injuries, but the person I talked to said they had some injuries for sure, uh, concussion and and things like that, and just wanted people to know like take these storms seriously. Um, and and I'm trying to think back, if I was in that scenario, what would I have done? Right, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, and if you're traveling on the QE2 uh, there's in the, in the summer, I mean, I think traveling in the morning, if possible, is, is a good practice if you know severe weather is going to happen, so getting that forecast. Uh, and then if you do see a storm, maybe trying to wait it out in a, in a town where you can get a little bit of shelter uh, and let it pass before you continue traveling. But if you get stuck in that scenario, because these storms can move up fast, I mean, I don't know really what to do other than cover your heads because in, in, even in the vehicle, if you have a sunroof or even all the windows on some of those vehicles are just gone. So you really have to just shelter yourself and, and hang tight in that scenario. Uh, you're, you know, and the scary thing, Nevin, it happened to me once. I don't know. I think it was 19, I'm going to say 1996, 97 in Calgary. There was a wicked hailstorm and, and a bunch of us had pulled over to the side of the road because you simply couldn't see where you're going. But then you've got not only the storm and you've got the hail and you can see what's going on. But the concern then is what if somebody else decided they weren't going to pull over, right? And couldn't see where they were going. So, I mean, what's what's the recommended rule? And I, I, I know there's probably laws around this, but do you pull over? Do you try and get off the road or what i mean that's another consideration and i'm so glad you brought that up because even when i was driving after the chase yesterday back through red deer there were people parked under overpasses yeah. and that's just not the place you want to be either um from a traffic perspective more than anything for me i know in in tornado events that can actually act like a wind tunnel but for from a traffic perspective if the semi behind you doesn't see that everyone is stopped under this overpass like that's that could be it's trouble huge. right yeah yeah, so pulling over there as far as you can, even getting into, if you can, onto the side of the ditch, like off the road is, is probably your best bet. Uh, for us, when we're chasing, we're always like in an approach or off the road completely, uh, but often we're not in the storm, right? We're, we're staying yeah. outside it. Well, I'm glad you stayed safe, Nevin, and uh, next time you got something that you're keeping an eye on, let us know about it, okay? You bet. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir.
That is Nevin Demiliano, who's a prairie with Prairie Storm Chasers. This is what he does. He's out there chasing storms, and as I say, you know, if you check out his social media, he was he was in the neighborhood all weekend long, as one after another. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at uh, deadly hail incidents in Canada, and I cannot find anybody having been killed by hail in Canada. Not to say it hasn't happened. Uh, I'm just doing a quick check here, though, and I can't find any. I did come across one of the worst hailstorms ever, and it's got to be the one that I'm talking about that I went through. Uh, the 24th of July in 1996, uh, Calgary and Winnipeg, orange-sized hailstones caused almost $300 million worth of damage in Calgary and in Winnipeg and some serious flooding too. Notably, one-third of the cars damaged by that storm were not repairable. I That's the storm where um, my, uh, my little Sunfire, which I was driving at the time, it looked like a golf ball. It literally did. It was just... Front to back, top to bottom, full of little dents from the hail that had hit. I'm pretty sure I pulled over on the side of Crowchild. I'm sure it was Crowchild um, in the afternoon because he couldn't see. I mean, it was raining so hard and hailing so hard. And the thing that I remember more than anything else, and I can't imagine what it was like yesterday, is the noise. If you've been in a car during a good thunderstorm or a good hailstorm like that, you know how loud it is. Well, this one was louder than anything that I would ever been through before. Um, if you were out in that storm yesterday, let us know what it was like. I've got a bunch of different texts and all kinds of different reports of damage. I can tell you about some of those, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, just some of your texts on the wild weather that we saw this weekend. Uh, this listener says, I got caught on the edge of a storm last night just west of Penhold, parked on a rural road behind some trees, still got over two dozen dents on the new truck. There were some big stones. Uh, same listener says, uh, a friend of mine lost 11 sheep in a hailstorm back in 1988 east of Stettler. Uh, listen to this text. I live 15 minutes east of Innisfail. I have never seen a storm like that. 72 years old, born in Alberta. I lost the roof on my home, my eaves troughs, the roof on my travel trailer, broken windows, the windshields on both of my vehicles, a million dents in both vehicles and sundry other damages. I have never seen anything like it, but we are tough and we will survive. I'm glad nobody was hurt. I checked in and said, is everybody okay? And he said, yeah, we're fine. Um, but uh, really, really took a beating on the property. Um, this listener says, worst I've been in was a storm in Sundry in 2008. Uh, big tornado touchdown uh, in James. The sky was neon green, golf ball-sized hail. Temp went from 33 to 2 degrees in just a few hours. The car was written off, but it was the coolest storm I've ever been in. And G says, I just bought a car in the U.S. to bring back to Canada to sell at a small profit. It was a white Subaru demo with under 5,000 miles. We got caught in a hailstorm with silver dollar-sized hail in Colorado that went all the way up to Calgary. I named that car Titleist. Somebody will say, what happened to the car lots? I don't know. Big, big insurance claims. I guarantee you, if you try and get in touch with uh, a body shop, especially in Red Deer, but probably anywhere in Alberta, based on the fact that, you know, you're not going to have drivers from all over the province, uh, they're going to be dealing with all kinds of estimates that you're going to have to take to your insurance company to try and see if your car is salvageable. Some of them are going to be written off. Based on the pictures I saw yesterday, there's no two ways about it. I mean, every single window destroyed, the car dented all to hell. I mean, just destroyed. So uh, a lot of cars will be written off, but those that have to be repaired, it's a long process. I've been through it. 
<laughs> Trust me, you have to go to the body shop and they're backed up like crazy because everybody's at the body shop. Of course, that was in the city of Calgary where it happened. So I don't know how bad it's going to be. RCMP reported about 70 vehicles with smashed out windows and windshields as a result of the storm yesterday. Dan in Edmonton, you're on the air. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I was coming through um, down Highway 2 South yesterday, okay. just coming down Antler Hill. Yeah. And I saw the most massive, massive black cloud. Like, I've never seen anything like that in all my years in Alberta. What time was that at, Dan? It was just uh, around about 5.30. As I pulled over to the side of the road to get a look at where the storm was going, I got an alert that there was a tornado warning. And it looked like the storm was going exactly where I was going. So I said, nope, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Drove back to Innisfail, uh, put 20 bucks of gas in. I said to the gas station guy, can I park my car under the overhang? He came out and looked, and he parked his car under there, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw hail, nothing as big as what I saw on the highway. When I got back on the highway, I was basically 40 minutes on the road, just mayhem. Cars, all the windows were smashed out. Totally, like Side. completely destroyed, right? Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> I've never seen anything like that in my life. I'm like, you know what? I'm glad I trusted my instinct on that one. My dad used to say, I don't want to drive in that, and I kind of did the same thing yesterday. So did you, I mean, the thing people always talk about is the sky turns green, right? Did you notice anything like that? It wasn't green. It was black. It definitely looked like there was the ability for funnel clouds. That was my main concern is high winds. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there was a small, you know, F1, F2 tornado. I'm not a scientist. Nobody take that. Because the, the damage on the vehicles was a lot on the side. And if you know hail, it usually falls straight down. So there must have been some wind or something that was propelling it into the sides of the cars. Yeah, some of the, the pictures I saw. Was a talk some of the pictures that I saw, Dan, looked like, you know, like gas caps and gas covers were completely ripped off and things like that. And I don't know how hail would do that. All the side windows of the cars, too. Yeah. Like the little window in the back. So I don't know. There, I, again, I'm not a scientist. I don't know exactly sure. what happened. Yeah. But it didn't look like a hailstorm. I saw a little bit of hail in Red Deer, nothing hitting the side of my car. So were people like wandering around uh, sort of in the aftermath trying to figure out what to do next? I mean, I don't think some of those cars would have been drivable, Dan. No, no. There's whole families on the side of the road. There's one lady, her car was completely demolished. A firefighter gave her a blanket and she was just kind of sitting on the side of the road crying. It's tragic. But to be fair, I mean, the warning systems were in place. Yep. And I, just as an experienced Albertan driver in the summertime, I've hit snow on that same little stretch of highway. I always say it's the worst weather in Alberta localized to that little spot. I saw the sky, and I said, I've driven in zero visibility before. It's not fun. I just said, you know what? I'm going to take an hour. I'm going to pit stop into town. I'm going to grab some Subway. I'm going to fill my gas tank, get a treat for the dog, and I'm so glad I did because those cars were completely ripped. Totally. And, you, and, and you're right. There is a corridor between Red Deer and Calgary there and around Innisfail, Didsbury, around that way. Yeah. Where it's always crazy. It's almost always nuts in terms of weather around there. I remember taking my kids to Kelowna one year in August, and it was, you know, 25 degrees outside, sunny, sunshine, everything. That little area, there was an actual snowstorm. Like, we took pictures, <laughs> there was snow all over the ground. <laughs> and then back to the rest of Calgary, it was all sunny all the way to Kelowna. So. There's something about that corridor for sure. Dan, great stuff. Thanks so much for calling. Thank you. That's Dan, who drove through that storm in Innisfail yesterday. And, you know, he makes a good point. I've lived in Alberta all my life, and I've never thought about avoiding severe weather in terms of driving, like, in planning out my day kind of a thing, right? Like like Nevin said, the storm chaser said, you know what, here's a tip. If, if you're driving in Alberta on a day when there's the potential for severe weather, do your driving in the morning.
It makes perfect sense, but I'm going to tell you honestly, it's never, ever occurred to me before. In fact, yesterday or Saturday, whatever that, yeah, Saturday, I drove out to um, the Onaway area, left in the middle of a storm. But I mean, we weren't anticipating severe weather at that point, right? It was, it was just a storm. You're going to have a thunderstorm. I think they got a pretty good storm yesterday. Now, though, I want to get an update. Uh, of course, the Pope has now left Canada, flew out on Friday. Uh, we had a lot of coverage last week when he was in the province of Alberta with several different events. Um, and, and at all of those events, um, there were mental health professionals on hand uh, there at the events to um, help out anybody who, you know, needed the help. I mean, just think of, uh, of the emotion and, and, and the triggering and all the rest. And there was, it was widely expected that that would happen. And lo and behold, it did. Uh, double the number of calls uh, to crisis lines um, and a number of counselors on site working well into the night with people, including Nola Jeffrey, who is the executive director of the Sautun Lelam Society, or Lelam Society, a substance abuse and trauma help center. And Nola joins us now. Nola, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Did I say the name of the help center correctly? Sautun Lelam? You did very well. Yes, okay, you good. did. <laughs> all right. Um, first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, just tell us about, uh, you came out from British Columbia to be part of this, correct? That's correct. We came from Vancouver Island. Um, what was it like? How did you, I mean, I know you brought stuff with you and you were all set up. Just, just tell us about your experience in, in coming here and, and what you were expecting uh, when you arrived. Okay. Um, well, there was a team of eight of us that came from Vancouver Island, four of my team, so six cultural support workers, um, myself and my um, RHSW coordinator, Resolution Health Support Worker Coordinator, who coordinates our cultural support team. Four of them were, uh, four of the cultural support were actually residential school survivors, and we drove from the island because we wanted to bring our medicine with us. Um, we use cedar, spruce, hemlock, and balsam, um, and and water. And so, um, and one of one of our elders uses a rattle and uh, eagle feathers. So we needed to to drive because we we brought we knew we were going to be supporting or our, we anticipated I should say supporting a lot of people because we'd been involved in the truth and reconciliations and had witnessed the pain that people were carrying. So it took us two days to travel over to Edmonton, and we had to leave really early, um, five in the morning, to catch the bus to Muskogee. And uh, we got in the gates, and we we set up. We weren't part of the 300 um, mental health and cultural workers. We came separately with the help of First Nations mm-hmm. Health Authority, and we set up just outside the arbor. And as soon as we we took our medicines out, people started coming to us. They, they just became, a, I don't know, it was like a magnet. And we probably, before the Pope entered the grounds, we probably had brushed 125 people um, thereabouts. And it wasn't just our Indigenous Métis and Inuit people. It was non-Indigenous people. It was the clergy. It was people that were responsible for security. It was police officers. Um, 
Many different people came, and that day we probably brushed about 300 people, and I couldn't tell you how many people I personally talked to. And I think because people out there weren't used to seeing the kind of um, um, healing work that we were able to bring, and so lots of questions, lots of interest, lots of people carrying, like you said, pain, huge yeah. pain, the the opening of some for some people like the intergenerational survivors not even knowing that they had these wounds. Of course, the residential school survivors were were aware of it. So, but people that hadn't. The non-indigenous people were also were also hurting. We're also feeling things. So, um, and so I think I can't remember what time we got there, but we were one of the last people on the site that day because we we didn't want to leave until everybody that wanted a brushing or wanted to talk to us was able to do that. Tell so me that about, was day one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it continued out on Alberta Beach. But I want to ask you about the water. I was reading about that. That's fascinating to me. Tell me about the work you do with water. So, so our people have always used cold water um, for healing. It, it cleanses, but what it also does is we have something inside. Of, so science, I, I always believe science is catching up to what um, people already knew, our ancestors already knew, probably your ancestors too. Like I, I think, you know, our ancestors were really smart. So, so cold water, there's something inside us called the vagus nerve, and it helps regulate us. And when it's out of balance, if either when we're having anxiety, really high feelings or really low feelings, cold water helps to, to regulate that, helps it to become more balanced. That's one thing it does. But we also, science has found out that if, if I was laughing and tears came out of my eyes, that would just be salt water. But when I when when I when tears come out of my eyes because I, I have sorrow or pain or grief or even anger, there's enough toxins in the teaspoon of those tears that it could kill a rat. So lots of lots of toxins sitting on your face. And when you use cold water to wash your face, it it refreshes you. But again, it helps to ground you. And we always four is an important number for us. It's a sacred number. So we get people when they're washing, we pour water into their hands. And when I'm doing it, it depends who's doing it, what they say. But I always say the first one's in honor of creator or God, whatever you call that higher power. The second one is in honor of your ancestors. The third one's in honor of your territory. And and for some people, that's the territory that they come from and the territory that they currently live on. And the last one is because we for, sometimes we forget to honor ourselves and, and realize how precious we are. I always tell them this one's the most important, and it's an honor of beautiful, precious you. And people feel better. It, it it really helps. We do we do we we go actually into the ocean or the rivers. It needs to be running water to do that cleansing. So it's um, and and honoring and and doing our prayers and asking for for what we want and what we need and what we don't want. Because so, sometimes you know we're energy and we carry things negative energy and and this is another way of letting that go. Just like the brushings work to let that go. Are you worried now? I mean, we had all the focus on this and we had all the help available during the visit. And this will have opened, as we've said, opened up a lot of wounds for a lot of people that the attention and the interest and the focus and the help will disappear going forward. And they won't be able to access the help that they were able to get during the visit itself. That's exactly what does happen. Um 
So, so Southern Lalem and many places like Southern Lalem have been doing this work for many, many years. Our organization has been in operation. We opened our doors in 1988. So we continue the work. And so the, the, those other healing centers continue the work. People in our communities continue the work. But we do need, we need more. We need more healing centers. We need to be able to do healing on the land. It needs to be led by our people, by Indigenous, uh, Inuit, and Métis people. And, you know, it's nice to have the support from Western methodologies, Eastern methodologies. I really believe that whatever resonates and works for an individual is is what they need. But there does need to be more of it. There needs to be that support. Mm -hmm. And to have that support, we need resources. We need funding. We need we need the money because I don't want to go into the whole history uh, of what has happened, but you know that lots of our land and our resources have been taken away from us and that we've been put on small little pieces of land called reserves and our different rights have been taken. So we don't have a lot of economic opportunity and it takes, uh, I'm uh, Lalem's in the process of building a new healing house. As you and I speak, we've had a lease since the Nawas territory for over 34 years. That lease is up at the end of this month. The community has grown, has expanded. They need the land that we're on. So we had to go and find a new land and we're building down in Cowichan. And prior to the pandemic, our building was going to cost just over $12 million. It's up to 16 right now, wow. and possibly 18 And so First Nations Health Authority has been able to help with some of that, but but not all of it because there's at least nine there's nine healing houses in BC right now. They're wanting to open another two. Um, First Nations Health Authority got twenty million from the province, twenty million from the federal government, and they had twenty million to to update many of these healing houses and then to build two brand new ones. They don't cost call ours a new build, right. although yeah. it, okay. it is. So trying to find that funding. Um, I Last year, I started a GoFundMe for, for South and Lalem. We have donate at SouthandLalem.org um, um, and uh, reaching out to whoever is able to help because I really... Um, I, I have a big love for, for people, but yeah. especially... Oh, Michael. you can hear it, Nolene. And I hope people reach out to you and, and do help out. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I, I, thanks so much for joining us. Though. I do really appreciate you being here. Thank, thank you, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to share on behalf of um, behalf yeah. of Indian Residential School survivors and intergenerational survivors. You bet. Thanks so much, Noel. I really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Talk to you later. That's Nola Jeffrey, the Executive Director of the Sautun... Lalem Society, which is a substance abuse and trauma help center. Right now, though, I want to get an update on Bill C-11. We've talked about this a lot uh, on the show over several months now. It's it's the online streaming bill, essentially, um, is what it's uh, dealing with. Uh, Canada's online streaming bill to try and, uh, you know, tackle some of the big streaming platforms, your Netflix, your YouTube, things like that, and make them pay for access to the Canadian marketplace. Well, Canada's international trade minister met with a U.S. trade representative recently, and and following that meeting, both sides apparently um, released their statement, as they always do, right? You get the readout, it's called, or the report about what happened at the meeting, completely routine. In this case, though, they were at least somewhat different. The U.S. record indicates that the U.S. rep raised concerns about Bill C-11. Canada's record 
did not include that detail. Nonetheless, though, we know that the U.S. has some concerns about Bill C-11. To find out what they are and if they're right to be concerned, we're going to chat with Dr. Michael Geist, who is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Dr. Geist, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So what's your understanding as to what the Americans are concerned about surrounding C-11? What's the problem? Well, I think their concern is that it may well violate, or some of the provisions in that bill may violate the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement, CUSMA, or the USMCA, yeah. uh, depending on where you're at. And, you know, that agreement fundamentally requires that companies from whichever of the three parties be treated in an equal manner, that there be no discrimination between them. And, you know, if we take a look at some of what Bill C-11 does, it expressly wants to discriminate. It wants to prioritize Canadian culture and CanCon, and it may do so in a way that unfairly disadvantages uh, some of the U.S. streaming services, potentially requiring them to pay into a system that they can't benefit from. And so the U.S., quite clearly, as we learned, not from Canada, they kept it secret. Yeah. But with the U.S. advises, they've got real concerns about the direction Canada's heading in. So, okay, first of all, let's back up a bit here. What's the aim of this bill? I mean, there's so many different concerns that have been raised in so many different areas about this bill. Um, government keeps telling us, no, no, don't worry, this is a good thing. This is good for Canadians. It's going to mean billions of dollars for Canadian content and on. What's the focus? How is this supposed to work? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I think in some ways when we're talking about C-11, there's what the government says it intends and then what the bill actually does. So what it says it intends is to try to bring the large streaming services, the Netflix and Disney's of the world, into the Canadian system. And I think we can have a reasonable debate even about that. Um, Netflix, for example, told the committee they've put in about $3 billion into the Canadian market in terms of licensing and funding film and TV production here. So the notion that they're not already a major contributor simply isn't the case. But even if we accept that, yeah, we'd want to bring them into the system, where this bill, I think, went off the rails and why you're seeing the kind of concern that we've seen is that it extended or expanded the scope of the bill to go beyond those large streaming services and even capture things like user content and putting potential regulatory powers in the hands of the the CRTC, the regulator, when it comes to that kind of content. Gotcha. Okay. Now, legally speaking, the United States would have some concerns, they said. Um, Do you see that those concerns are legitimate and how would we find out? Will this have to be tested legally somehow? Yeah, that's a great question, and it actually gets pretty complicated because uh, some of your listeners may recall that Canada's long argued that they want an exemption for the cultural sector within their trade agreements. This dates back now, several trade agreements, and that is there here as well. And so, you know, you can come to the come to this issue by saying yes, the, the yes, the Canadian Bill C11 violates this trade agreement, but Canada is entitled to violate the trade agreement based on the specific exemption. But there's a catch. And the agreement also says that where a country seeks to rely on that cultural exemption, where Canada says, yes, we know it's offside our non-discrimination obligations, but we're going to do it anyway, the other parties are entitled to levy tariffs uh, that are of the same value or an equivalent value of the losses. So you started off by saying that Canada thinks this could be worth billions of dollars. If this is in fact worth billions of dollars, the U.S. could turn around and say, we're going to levy tariffs on Canadian 
providing goods and services in the same amount, billions of dollars, and in fact, they'd be able to do it in whatever sector they want. They could exact, in a sense, the maximum amount of pain on the Canadian economy by targeting whatever sectors in retaliation they want. Hmm. Now, is how likely is this? The Canadian government, in response to the minister's office, says, no, it's not discriminatory. It's in line with trade obligations. We have nothing to worry about here. Everything's fine. And doesn't sound like they're managing to come up with any reason to change things. Do you think this is really a concern that something that could play out in the future? No, I think there is unquestionably a real risk. Hmm. You know, I think, I think we've seen the Department of Canadian Heritage, the Minister Pablo Rodriguez, essentially look for a mission accomplished moment to say, hey, I passed this legislation. And so many of the, the details that follow are left for other people to deal with. It's left for the regulator, for the CRTC to figure out, which it says could take a couple of years as part of that process. It's left for trade officials to sort through where there's the prospect of this kind of challenge. It's less left for justice and their lawyers to deal with the prospect of other legal challenges over this legislation. So I think what we've seen is a government that's determined to get this passed, knowing that there are some significant risks and essentially saying that'll be someone else's problem. Interesting. So no, uh, as you say, uh, determined to get this passed, some slight tinkering a while ago, but it looks like now we're going ahead and we'll sort it out later. There, you know, there was a, a modest amount of tinkering, but the core concerns yeah. that existed within this legislation, those remain unchanged. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks very much, Doctor. I really appreciate your time as usual. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. That's Dr. Michael Geist, who is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.